and continue to join you in prayer as you seek God's will in uh, finding a full-time pastor. We're excited to see what the Lord has in store for you all here at this church. Now, you may have noticed from the public reading of Scripture and the title of today's message that we will be considering the topic of money, uh, to one degree or another at least. And I, I have to admit, it always feels like a risky move when a preacher gets up there to talk about money-related matters. Uh, maybe slightly less risky for me today, since uh, y'all ain't my church members. <laughs> At this point, though, I should uh, let you know that your uh, elders had no clue what I was preaching on until just a couple days ago. They did not put me up to this. Okay. Well, joking aside... Um, the Bible does have an awful lot to say about money matters, doesn't it? As well as giving, and that is going to be our focus today. We're going to see how God's word teaches us to be generous givers with all that he has generously given to us already. Before we consider our key text today from uh, 2 Corinthians, actually the next chapter after what was read, chapter 9, let's back up and first consider the context that's found here as was read in chapter 8. Here in 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth, and he's telling them about what was happening among the Christians over in Macedonia. Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians the example of the Macedonians in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8. And he begins by giving a testimony to the grace of God that is at work among his churches there. You see, there had been a, a great need in another part of the world, over in Jerusalem. Actually, various parts of the Roman Empire were experiencing food shortages at that time. But there in Jerusalem, it was uh, exceptionally difficult. Uh, it felt like a famine in, in that place, and especially for those who had no funds, no money to uh, find food. It, it was devastating for many of them. So Paul, often attentive to the needs of those he was ministering among, was trying to coordinate a, a relief package from other churches to be sent with him to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He writes about this in Romans 15. At the end of Romans 15, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, he says, and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So that seems to be the context here, a financial, even a humanitarian effort uh, to help a need for other churches in another part of the empire. But the principles of giving generously that Paul lays down here in 2 Corinthians are certainly applicable to the context of our own local churches and not just for some kind of one-off emergency event, some kind of crisis in another part of the world. No, even for us, on a regular basis, there are principles to be gleaned here, brothers and sisters, to apply to our own lives as we re-examine this text this morning. Now, the Christians, excuse me, the Corinthian Christians seem to have had it better off than a lot of other Christians in other places, such as Macedonia. Corinth had two major ports nearby, and so it made it more economically stable, and the people that lived there seemed to be uh, better off financially on the whole. By comparison, however, Paul does uh, Paul described the Macedonian Christians as dealing with extreme poverty, he says. 
And yet Paul points the Corinthians to the example of, of they, the, the Macedonian believers, and saying that in spite of their severe affliction uh, of, of the Jewish Christians there by non-believing Jews, and in spite of their extreme poverty, the Macedonians, Paul tells us, overflowed in generosity. They gave of their own accord, he tells us, without coercion, without external pressure being placed upon them. And this isn't a natural response of man. They gave of their own accord. They, they weren't pressured into it. It wasn't even natural. But this, as Paul puts it, is only the result of God's grace in individual lives. This is what can happen when our hope as, as Christians are not in the material things like money and our homes and our other possessions, but this kind of open-handed generosity exemplified by the Macedonians occurs only when the, when the joy of the Lord is our strength. And here's the fundamental principle that we find bridging chapters 8 and chapters, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, that we are generously blessed by God that we may give generously. And in giving generously, we are blessed generously. So I want us to see this principle as it plays out in just two uh, simple points this morning. First, the grace of God generously given. The grace of God generously given. And secondly, the grace of generous giving to God. So first, we'll see the grace of God generously given to us. As we'll see, Paul's entire argument about giving generously as Christians is built upon the premise of the gospel of God's grace to sinners like us. We, we can look back at chapter 8 and verse 9, and Paul says there, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and oh, how rich our Savior is. Oh, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God is a giver. God is a generous giver at that. The most generous giver one could ever imagine. Consider John 3.16. Probably one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. What do we see here? We see the overwhelming generosity of God towards sinners. And why? Because of his free and generous love for us. I think the Apostle John later carries that thought over into his epistle. In 1 John, if you would, please turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 4. And we can see here in 1 John 4 what the Apostle John is, is talking about. 1 John 4, beginning at verse 7, here's what we read. Beloved, John says, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might have life through him or might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, not that we on our own just naturally came out of the womb wanting to love God. No, he says, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, John says, 
if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So where, where do we begin when we want to consider this idea of generosity? Well, there's nowhere better to begin than with the greatest example of generosity, which we find in the generous gift of God giving his son Jesus to sinners. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, if you flip back to 2 Corinthians and a, a few chapters earlier, in verse 17, Paul begins by saying there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this, listen to this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But here Paul, he's painting a picture of God's redeeming grace at work in a sinner's life. Where there was once deadness, God brings newness of life. And how does he do that? He brings it through the atoning, the, the justifying, the, the reconciling work of Jesus Christ in the world. And this is good news for sinners like you and me, isn't it? From God, we're told, through Christ, God has sovereignly, uh, monergistically, we could say, done it all for you, dear believer. And that should fill our hearts with thankfulness this day. Well, Paul himself is filled with thankfulness. He's overflowing in thankfulness to God for the spiritual work that was going on among the churches there in Corinth. While in his first letter to the Corinthians, that had a, a, a different tone to it at times, didn't it? Uh, Paul had to chastise them uh, quite severely at, at points um, due to their, the unaddressed issues of sin that were in their midst. Here in the second letter, however, Paul's tone is a little different, and he's encouraging them, and he's complimenting them for their love for God, as is demonstrated by their acts of service, their support of others, their heart for helping others, including their partnership with Paul himself. In fact, Paul mentions boasting. He, he mentions boasting about the Corinthians more than once in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, I, I think probably seven, eight times. He, he's talking about boasting about them. Um, but at the same time, that boasting is not about them on this, this horizontal level, but he's boasting about them in the Lord. And the Lord and, and giving God the credit for the grace of God that had grown the Corinthians in their sanctification. As Paul knew, their spiritual progress since his last letter to them, even their desire for generosity among the Corinthians there, that was all of God's grace for which God should receive all the glory. The truth is, my friends, left to ourselves, we'd all be cold-hearted and stingy, wouldn't we? I mean, we could probably, you know, scrape together a few dollars here and there to give some good cause or charity out there. And, and we would do that and we'd feel great about ourselves in doing so. But is that true spiritual generosity that Paul is speaking of here that God desires? I think we'd all be a lot like Ebenezer Scrooge in uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, left to ourselves in one way or another. In Dickens' story, Scrooge, as you know, is this miserly old man who, he hates Christmas, bah humbug. Uh, he hates giving presents, even receiving presents. He's just the absolute 
uh, definition, embodiment of stinginess, isn't he? His very name has come to mean the exact opposite of kindness and generosity. Uh, he's, he's a big meanie head, kids. As you know, uh, and if you don't know, spoiler alert, but also it's a book that's been around like 200 years, so um, there are some bizarre events that happen to Ebenezer Scrooge one evening, and he undergoes this radical transformation at the end of that night. He's transformed from the inside out, and what is one of the most amazing results of that transformation? Scrooge, who was very Scrooge-like before, miserly and whatnot, he becomes generous He becomes generous with his wealth and begins to help others. Instead of hoarding it all for himself, he begins to see opportunities to bless others. And this, I think, is one of the reasons that that this story has been so well received through the years. It so well reflects the the work of grace in a sinner's heart, something we all need. And in the person of Ebenezer Scrooge, probably one of the most uh, dynamic characters in English literature, we see this portrait of a sinner who's regenerated by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Even if that's not how Dickens meant it, it's, it's hard not to, uh, to see that as believers. Here's the point. When a sinner undergoes spiritual death, death to self, and is raised in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in salvation, he is, as Paul said earlier, a new creation, we're told. And the same grace of God which brings a soul to life is that same grace which then incites the heart of of a, a man to then give generously from him and through him and back to him are all things to him be the glory forever. It's all of grace. It's all of the glory uh, to the glory of God for his grace to sinners. Well, having considered that grace of God that's been generously given to sinners like us, that brings us to see secondly, the grace of generous giving to God. So first, God works grace in us, and then he endues us with a grace by which we might live. He doesn't give us a one-time saving grace and then, and then just you know, sets us uh, out into the world and lets us go. No, he continues to give grace, or as John says in John 1.16, grace upon grace. Paul shows in chapter 8, verse 4, that the Macedonians recognize the ability to be generous by itself. That by itself is a grace of God. And so what did they do? They begged Paul to be able to, to, to allow them to be able to partake in the grace of giving to others. As we see in verse 5 there in chapter 8, they financially gave because they had first given themselves to commitment, uh, to committed service in Christ. Generosity doesn't always show up in giving money, in doling out uh, money. It begins first with that new desire in a Christian's changed heart, a desire to give, to serve, to help others because of that sold-out commitment in thankful obedience to Christ. If you're here today, ask yourself if you know anything of that desire just that, that seed desire to serve Jesus. Is Jesus your master? Is he your Lord? Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So if you have no desire to obey the teachings of Christ and to follow his example of holy living, well, then perhaps you've never really loved him in the first place. 
But if you're hearing my voice today and you do love Jesus, well, then you know that even though none of us obey him as we ought, we will never obey him perfectly. We sure want to, don't we? (laughs) You love him and you want to love him more. And you want to show your love for him by following the instructions that he's given to us in his word. And I hope that describes all of us here today. The whole point that Paul is getting at in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is to encourage the Corinthian Christians in the grace of generous giving. Paul writes at the beginning of chapter 6 of the same letter, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. How does one receive the grace of God in vain? Well, in other words, Paul's saying here, do something with the grace that you've been given. Put it to use. Pass it on. Be gracious. Live it out. Invest wisely and bear fruit. And that's what he's getting at here in chapter 9. Peter says similarly in in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. he, He says that each of us has received a gift and we're to use it to serve one another And in doing so, we are good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, we're lavished with grace from salvation to uh, death, uh, grace upon grace. And now, like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, being recipients of grace, we're to steward it, to, to put it to use what God has already richly blessed us with. And we exhibit that in the grace of giving. By the time Paul gets to writing the words here in chapter 9, he's simply reminding the Corinthians of of what they had previously told him, that they were desirous to lend financial aid to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He told them in chapter 8, verse 10, that they were the first congregation not only to begin a collection for the Jerusalemites, but even to have that desire to help them. And he commends them for that. And what an honor that commendation from the apostle must have been. So when Paul begins here in chapter 9, verse 1, he begins by saying, in light of what you've said and done in the past, it's superfluous, he says, for me to write to you about all of this. I love that word, superfluous. In other words, Paul was saying, hey guys, I know you already know this, (laughs) but hear me out. Some have even uh, looked at Paul's language here and interpreted it as being a bit cheeky, uh, a little sarcastic maybe, almost like, now listen, I know y'all are really good at giving, and so it's, you're so good at giving that it's, it's almost silly for me to even be mentioning this to you. You're, you generous Corinthians of all people, I mean, I've been telling the Macedonians all about you guys for a while now. And they are stoked by all the stories of you and your generosity, right? I know I don't have to remind you about that generous gift that you said you would be sending to Jerusalem a year ago. (laughs) I know you haven't forgotten about that gift. I know you still have that desire in your heart. Uh, But in the off chance that maybe some wires got crossed somewhere along the line, uh, I'm going to send some friends to you, is what Paul begins by saying here in chapter 9. I'm going to send some friends ahead of me uh, to prepare the collection for the Jerusalemites. And that way, no one gets embarrassed. Uh, No one's put out. No one's ashamed. If you maybe somehow possibly happen to forget, Um, I was just bragging on you guys to the Macedonians. And uh, I'd hate to to be uh, wrong about this. 
So, you know, if you guys could go ahead and finish that collection, that would be great, okay? Okay, that's a loose Rizzo paraphrase, but um, <laughs> that's essentially what Paul's saying here in the first few verses of chapter 9. And one of the things that I really admire about the Apostle Paul um, is, is how organized he seemed to have been. Uh, here we see him doing planning and pre-work for the sake of the collection for Jerusalem. And I think we have a good example in that, both for us as individual believers as well as for us as a corporate body of Christ. Planning, budgeting, saving for the future, even spending now and investing. Those are all, dare I say, spiritual activities. Spiritual activities. When was the last time you were putting together your budget and thought, man, I'm really doing some spiritual work here, aren't I? If you want to know where a person's priorities in life are, it's been said you can just look at their bank account, their end-of-year statements, and that would give you some insight. I think Jesus, too, had a thing or two to say about the spiritual component of our material possessions and our financial activities. Matthew six twenty one: for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And a few verses later, he, he warns and says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And so part of Paul's purpose in sending brothers in advance to arrange the collection of the offering was so that the gift itself would not feel burdensome, so that it wouldn't feel like a tax, like the, the IRS is knocking at their door and they have to turn this over now so that Paul can leave and take it with him to Jerusalem. No, he wants to encourage them. Hey, if you still have that desire to be generous, uh, let's, let's help that along and, and let's get it sent. So he sent some brothers along with him. And then he gets to his main point in verse 6 of chapter 9. If you look there with me, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Paul's main point, he calls it out. The point that I'm trying to make is right here, guys. It's to encourage the Corinthians to sow bountifully. And in doing so, they can expect to reap bountifully. We all know something, uh, a little something at least, about seeds and how seeds work. Uh, imagine being given a jar of seeds, just raw seeds. What do you suppose you would do with those seeds? Would you screw the lid on the jar real tight and then put it on a shelf in the, the other room and forget about it? Would you uh, go to the store and try to buy more seeds and just stockpile seeds? I just want jars and jars of seeds in my pantry in my kitchen. Uh, would you throw them away? Maybe pull the, the lid off and toss them to the birds, throw them out your car window, whatever. Uh, I hope you wouldn't do any of those things if you were given some good seeds. Instead, I hope that you would plant them or give them to someone who would. Here Paul makes a clear example a clear case from natural revelation. By the way, the scriptures are doing that constantly. You know, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Uh, look how the farmer plants and waters. And they're constantly uh, pointing to God's other book of revelation. And that is uh, the, the revealed nature that we all can see around us. But he's making a case from that. And he says, if, you're, if you sow your seeds sparingly, I'm just going to toss one over there and one over there and call it a day. Well, then you're going to reap sparingly. You're not going to have a great abundance when it's time to harvest. But if you sow bountifully, planting a lot of seed, 
And if you really want a good harvest, then you better put some thought and planning into it, shouldn't you? Some, some real sweat equity at least. And if you do that, then you can have hopes of a greater harvest after the rains have come. It's not rocket science, right? It's basic agricultural principles known by civilizations since ancient times. And so the call here by Paul to all Christians is to live generously, to take care to invest the spiritual things just as you might take care to invest in material things in order to gain a reward, in order to get some kind of profit. Christian generosity, we see, isn't something that needs to be commanded. Uh, it shouldn't be something that needs to be instructed of those who've been, who've been plucked like a brand from the fires of hell. But generosity is that natural response, that overflow of the heart in, in a sinner's life. It may take different forms at, at different times, but the heart of a cheerful desire to give is always the same. And with that in mind, I want to consider eight further meditations from this passage concerning generous giving. And we'll go through these as we look at the rest of this text in chapter 9. First, in our giving, God shows his love toward us. In our giving, God shows his love toward us. We can look at verse 7, the last part of verse 7. Paul says there this famous uh, phrase that you've probably heard, especially during the time of offering and in corporate worship, God loves a cheerful giver. This is where the argument kind of begins. God and his love. And God loves. God is love, as we've seen already. That's simply what he is in his nature. Here we're told that God is pleased he loves cheerful giving. In Hebrews 13, verse 16, we read, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In anthropomorphic terms, we can say that God's face is shining upon us, smiling, as it were, when we give to God out of our happy hearts. And the contrast is made here in verse 7 by Paul between both reluctant giving or uh, compulsory giving and cheerful giving, which is free and, and generous. It's open-handed. It's not begrudging. It doesn't look at giving to God like paying a tax to the state. Instead, it's a way that we show our love for God to the one who's already loved us. It's a reminder, in fact, of his love toward us every time we open up our, our wallets or our checkbook or our Venmo or whatever we do, and we're giving to God. It's a reminder that he has already loved us. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have that desire to give to him in the first place. And so we do it because of his grace, as a response to his grace, which is a grace itself in our lives. And we do it with thanksgiving and in worship. Well, secondly, in our giving, we show our thankfulness to God. In verse 11, we're told, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So there should be happiness, uh, a joyfulness that accompanies our giving as we see here. Again, not under compulsion. Ah, oh, do I gotta do that again? You know, like mowing the lawn or something. Uh, it's, it's rooted in thankfulness. And there's this intimate connection between thankfulness and generosity. It's like a reciprocating relationship where one feeds the other and then in turn the other feeds the one, and, and they go back and forth feeding each other 
uh, thankfulness and generosity and generosity and thankfulness, producing more and more thankfulness to God for his many good gifts. Oh, the fact that I can even give today makes me thankful, and being thankful makes me more generous, and being generous gives me, you know, thankfulness to God. That's how this works, and that's what Paul's saying. It overflows in generosity back to God. We are enriched, we're told, enriched. We're made rich by God in every way so as to be more generous in every way. In our giving, we show our thankfulness to God. Thirdly, in our giving, we demonstrate our trust to God. As we see in verses 10 and 11, it is God who supplies the sower with the seed. Where did the seed come from? Yeah, we, we, we need to do something with it. Uh, we, we need to invest it, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but where did it come from in the first place? Well, it came from the supplier who is God himself. Our money is his money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we're told. We, we trusted God to provide us with the, the seed, whatever that is, the money we, we could say, in the first place, didn't we? And so we, we ought to trust him to multiply that seed, to multiply our wise and faithful use of it as we invest it generously. Remember the promise. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. We don't have to worry about uh, ever not having enough to be generous with. Here God says that he will enrich us so as to make us generous. Isn't that amazing? Our goal in giving should be faithful, cheerful, uh, thankful giving regardless of how meager the giving is. And I want to make sure I make this point today. Regardless of how small that, that gift do you remember the scene described for us by the Lord in Mark 12, verse 41? You can turn there if you'd like. We find Jesus sitting there with his disciples, and they're sitting outside the treasury of the temple, and they're, they're watching as people go in and, and do their, their uh, financial giving and putting it in the offering box in Mark 12, beginning at verse 41. And we read Mark saying, Many rich people put in large sums, and then a poor widow Came a, and, and she put in two small copper coins, uh, and it made a penny, he says. And then Jesus called his disciples to him. He's always looking for teaching moments, isn't he? And he said to them, truly I say to you, the, this poor widow has put more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. See, I think this is the example of the Macedonians that Paul was just sharing with the, the Corinthians in chapter 8. They'd given, they'd given according to, or, or other translations say, in proportion to their means. So the total sum of the Macedonian giving may have just been a very, very small fraction of what the Corinthians were able to give. But that's not the point. The size of the gift is not the point, Paul is saying. Not only did they give in proportion to their, their uh, uh, means, but Paul says they gave beyond it. Like this widow who gave all that she had, which was just a penny, gave beyond her means, beyond what would have been expected by them. As one commentator says, this wasn't reckless. This wasn't unwise, reckless, frivolous giving, but it was giving that defied all natural expectations of them. In other words, it was supernatural giving, wasn't it? What a great example, not only for the Corinthians, but for all of us Christians today in how we ought to give. 
Isn't it amazing what God can do with so little? You know, he made the universe out of what? <laughs> out of nothing. He, he provided water to the Israelites from a, a rock in the desert. He fed thousands, 5,000 or more, probably more like 15,000 when you add in the, the women and children, with a couple of fish and a, a few pieces of bread. And he's promised to build his spiritual kingdom through our efforts, which are often the size of a mustard seed. <laughs> and in, in doing that, God has promised to build his church. Do you trust that God can use you and your generosity, however feeble and meager that might feel? In Psalm 4, David demonstrates this kind of joyful dependence in the Lord. He says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. As you're offering, trust God to do with it what he will. But do what you know is right out of the overflow of thankfulness in your heart. David knew that real joy is not found in the material possessions, but in a peaceful trust in God, a contentment, genuine contentment. And we can give generously even when we have very little and we can trust that God will bless it. Fourthly, in our giving, we are blessed by God even now. In Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25, we read, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. As you know, Proverbs are our general moral principles, but they teach us about the normal course of events in, in our human experiences. We read from uh, Proverbs 3 this morning in verse 10, and give of the first fruits and your vats and storehouses and uh, winery, well, everything will be overflowing. There's that principle there that we're sh shown in the Old Testament, the same one that Paul's bringing into 2 Corinthians 9, that as we give generously, God will continue to bless us with the ability to give generously. Friends, we don't, we don't have to buy into the lies of uh, the prosperity preachers who pervert the scriptures and make it all about uh, them and, and the material things and as if we could somehow by our some kind of response of faith, earn more of God's blessing and favor and material stuff. We don't have to believe that kind of garbage in order to accept what God has to say about faithful giving and rewards. As the Apostle Paul, he quoted Christ in, uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 35, and he said famously, it's more blessed to give to than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. And I bet... I bet all of us, if we took some kind of inventory, maybe look back through our lives, uh, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, I bet we could all spot patterns of God's grace in our lives, in, in supplying our needs and providing for us. And then maybe there's that correlation where we say, wow, the Lord, I, I sought to be faithful and the Lord was always faithful to me and he gave abundantly to me, always supplying my need. I never had a lack. Uh, God always supplied my need. Maybe we, we aren't the most financially well off, but God is providing your daily bread for you, isn't he? And when we learn to trust God in our poverty and we continue to be generous as the Macedonians were, even in the hard times when we have very little, we shouldn't be surprised then when God blesses that, enabling us to keep being generous 
He blesses us even now, we see. And fifthly, in our giving, we invest in the things of God. In our giving, we invest in the things of God. There's a lot of talk about investing these days. You guys probably hear it every day, all the time, all over the place. Hey, how many shares you got? Uh, did you hear about the markets today? They're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. Yeah, I sold my Bitcoin, got some doggy coin or whatever it's called. Uh, I'm with Musk. I'm with, I, I'm of Bezos. I'm with uh, Zuckerberg, blah, blah, blah. It's all about the ROI, the return on the investment. Buy low, sell high. And the goal is always what? Profit, profit, profit. And getting more and more stuff. Now, I'm not here to, to uh, give tips and tricks on financial investing this morning. I know some people that could, uh, but that's not my job today. At the same time, I'll tell you, it's worth your consideration. Proverbs 21.5 does say, The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. There's wisdom, isn't there, in planning ahead. Just as there's virtue in diligent uh, planning and labor. But while we do our financial planning, we really should be asking ourselves, where does where does God fit into all of this? Where does God fit into all of my plans? I think so many people go throughout life uh, without realizing how God factors into things like monthly budgets and long-term retirement planning. For example, if you've set up a will or a trust for yourself and your family, have you considered putting the church that you're a member of as a beneficiary? It's good to ensure that your family is taken care of when you pass on. What about your church family, too? I know people that are closer to their church family than they are their own blood family because of the bond that we have in Christ. And wouldn't you want to see the gospel continue uh, even after you have gone? And if you can do one small thing and give a small, generous gift to the furtherance of the gospel in your church, uh, God surely would bless that. If we're looking at really investing spiritually, I would argue that it begins right here in the context of your local church. Uh, in, in the Nine Marks published book called Budgeting for a Healthy Church, the author Jamie Dunlop writes this, giving should be regular, planned, and progressive. In addition, giving should focus on the local church. He quotes from Galatians 6.6, 6, the one who receives instruction in the, wor- in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Since one's main source of teaching should be their church, he says, the church should be the main recipient of one's giving. It's especially important in an age of individualism to submit giving to the wisdom of the church by giving primarily to its budget, end quote. Let's be honest. There are a whole lot of great organizations, wonderful causes that we could all be generous uh, in our giving to. And perhaps God's blessed you so that you can help many of those good ministries out there. But I would suggest that if We are giving to other ministries while neglecting the work of God here in our own local church where we are committed as members, where we are called to invest our time and money. Then we're missing out on the chief way that God has ordained it to work. I'd agree with the author, Pastor Dunlop, that our primary avenue for generosity and and service should be in the church where we've committed ourselves as members. And through the church and through the church's budget and through the church's resources, we can pool our investment, can't we, with others and do uh, great things for the kingdom of God. You know, God hasn't promised in his word to build schools and orphanages and other great ministries out there, has he? He hasn't promised to do that. What has he promised to build? His church. His church. 
The church is where Christ has ordained for his word to go forth, right here, every Lord's Day, in a very ordinary fashion. I'm just one guy up here talking into a microphone, and you're sitting there listening. And yet God is doing something powerful through the working of his spirit, the spirit of Christ that is present among us today. And he's ministering that word as a means of grace to all of our hearts. That's how God intended it. That's how, we got, how God intended for sinners to be saved. So as we think about spiritual investment, let's invest in the things that are already promised by God to be blessed and will last for eternity. Well, just a few more and then we'll close. Number six, in our giving, we support the needs of God's people. I'm talking about the physical needs here. You go back to the collection here that Paul was gathering for the saints in Jerusalem. What was it for? It was addressing a very real, tangible, uh, physical, material need, right? There were poor and hurting brothers and sisters who, who could use that financial support to help them with very real needs. And, and I think Paul is showing that within the church setting, we have a spiritual obligation to fulfill those physical needs. Paul's not the only one that shows us this, but I think we can go back and read what Luke wrote in Acts 6 and how he describes even the, in the, the beginning of the, the office of deacon and how that was established. We're told in Acts 6 that there were widows who were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And in order for the church to minister mercy to them in physical need, and in order for the apostles, or what we would look at today as the elders, to keep on their work of preaching and overseeing and shepherding the church, the result was, was creating the diaconate and calling deacons who helped feed and care for the widows so that the gospel continue to go, could continue to go forth. And what was the result? We read in verse 7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And I love that verse, and I love that verse in that context because it shows us how the offices can work together for the glory of God's kingdom. As the elders and the deacons work together with the members, uh, we should see God's blessing upon a church. As Christians... We must care for both a person's spiritual and physical needs. Listen to how James puts it in James 2.15. This is a convicting uh, uh, place to go. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? As James goes on to show in the subsequent verses, our faith in Christ is, and love for God should be evidenced by a tangible, actionable kind of love that shows up, at least sometimes, in generosity towards the brethren. Or consider Galatians 6, 9 and 10. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap uh, if we do not give up. So then, or in light of this reality, he says, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. And some commentators have read this and interpreted this phrase, do good, as something of a material nature. Let us not grow weary of doing good, of doing an act or deed involving generosity, we could say. And that, that fits with the idea of sowing and reaping that's mentioned in Galatians 6, as well as uh, 2 Corinthians 9. We notice that the good doing that Paul encourages the Galatians to do uh, involves doing good to everyone, doesn't it? But he further qualifies it, and he adds, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, or fellow believers. And I think we could properly deduce that this would begin with our own congregations where we are members. If someone's looking for a place to start being generous, where do I go? How do I, how do I give all this extra money away? <laughs> 
Uh, so look, look no further than right here at Providence Reformed Baptist Church. Um, again, they did not pay me to say any of this. Um, but talk, seriously, talk to your deacons and your elders about opportunities to uh, continue to support the ministry here, uh, even if it's not financially, but how, how might the Lord use you and this church to, um, to continue to give generously for the sake of the kingdom? Ultimately, we, we pray for the Lord to provide for us and care for us. Well, seventhly, in our giving, we anticipate a future reward for God, from God. We anticipate a future reward from God. I, I wonder if sometimes we forget that God has promised to give us good things. David writes in Psalm 23, 6, Surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a beautiful promise from God, both for this life as well as for eternity. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We have much to look forward to, dear believers. A good foundation for future treasures, we're told. And just the thought of that, should spur us on even now to love and good deeds in this life. And eighthly, and lastly, in our giving, we are pointed to God's Son. Paul concludes his thoughts in chapter 9 with this crescendo. I love it when Paul does that. He does that over and over throughout some of his letters. In the middle of a thought, he's just overwhelmed with the thought of the glories and riches of God, and he crescendos his, his thoughts in in writing, and he says here in verse 15 of chapter 9, Thanks be to God for his indescribable, his inexpressible gift. And so we start, or we end where we started, don't we? With the grace of God given to us, this inclusio of sorts. Which gift here is Paul referring to? Why, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What greater gift could there be than what God in love has done and given, uh, giving us his son. I appreciate how Matthew Poole comments on this. He says, The apostle concludeth this whole discourse, discourse about contributing to the relief of these poor members of Christ with a general doxology or blessing of God for Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of all grace, without such a particular reference to the preceding discourse, yet hereby hinting to them that without the influence of his grace, they would... They could do nothing. It's all of grace. It's all of grace given to us through the person of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And in closing, my friends, remember that we are generously, generously blessed by God so that we might give generously. And in giving generously, we're further blessed generously. Thanks be to Christ. If there's one thing I'd like to leave you with today, it's, it's this. Consider what Christ what God in Christ has already given you. And thank him, dear Christian, for what, for, for what he's given you. And, and do that with a cheerful heart, thinking about the love of our Savior, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, 
and to go to the cross and suffer such an agonizing death and rise again on the third day victorious over death and, and mediate for us, intercede at the right hand of God the Father even now. Contemplating that, contemplating Jesus Christ. If you're ever feeling miserly, do that. Look to Christ, and that should stir our hearts to give us generous hands. May God continue to enrich you in every way, to be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for sending your son, Jesus Christ, that inexpressible gift that we 